Thanks a lot. I heard Randy tell you to give me a big applause. Well, it's really great to be here. I got to tell you, I'm shocked because um, every date that I had last year, it was like a countdown, and they were all canceled at the last minute. And I said, we're never going to get to Kansas City, but really surprised and really grateful to be here. Uh, first event of the year, maybe it's a good omen that the rest of them are going to you know, happen with all this COVID stuff. But Randy and I go back. We first met at Willow Creek Church back in 2006. And my pastor now, Gene Apple, is very good friends with, uh, with Randy. So it was funny. My church is opening up today for the first time. So I, I uh, texted Gene Apple last night. And I said, hey, I'm glad to see the church is opening. He said, well, I see you there this morning. And I said, nope, but your friend Randy will, you know, in church. But anyway, it's really great to be here. And, you know, I have, uh, I have a lot of affection, I would say, for Kansas City. My dad was in prison in Leavenworth from 19... 70 to 1976, so I was out here once a month, you know, for almost six years, so I know the area pretty well. Anyway, great to be here, and you know, um, every time I come out and speak, my prayer is always the same, people, because I'm not here to impose my faith on you. I'm not here to try to turn anybody into a Christian. I'm here merely to share what the Lord has done in my life, and I believe as Christians, we're all obligated to do that. Mark 16, 15, go out and preach, share the gospel role of creation. And my, my, you know, my prayer is always, Lord, let me be effective, let me be passionate enough in delivering this message so that you can reach out and touch the heart that you want to touch in this room. Because I know we're all just, we're planting seeds when we're up here, people. That's what it's all about. You know, we know the Holy Spirit wants to take those seeds and do whatever he's going to do with it in all of your lives. And that's my prayer all the time. And selfishly, I really hope that when you leave here this morning, you leave a little bit differently than when you walk in. Now, I know the message is going to resonate. I know the Lord is going to plant seeds because he doesn't waste time when he has people together. I really know that. And I just hope that it could be effective. And my challenge all the time, because they were telling me, you have a half an hour, Michael. And I said, well, look, I can tell my story in six minutes, six hours, or six days. And the thing is, how do you be effective in a half an hour and let you realize the extent of what the Lord has done in my life. So we're going to give it a shot, do the best we can. We have three services this morning. I have to tell you, I come in, I live in Southern California. When I left yesterday, it was 76 degrees. So, you know, but I grew up in New York, so I'm used to the snow. It's okay. But uh, we're going to do the best that we possibly can. You know, people, my story, it is a mob story, no doubt. That's where my roots were. That's where my dad was. But I, want you, I don't want you to focus on that. If you want to see the mob stuff, I'm all over YouTube. I got documentaries out there. They're doing TV series on my life. I got books. You can read all about that. That's not important. What is important is how God used a very dark time in my life to bring me to where, where I am today. And that's what's important about it. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story, but really mainly focus on what the Lord has done in my life because that's what it's all about. You know, he's given me a platform. People, I've been all over the world speaking, everywhere. And I can't believe, I can't believe the platform he's given me because for some reason the mob, because of the media, the movies and all of that, there's intrigue all over the world. You know that the biggest movie ever in China was The Godfather? Amazing. And I find this all over the world. So he's given me a platform and I try to use it really to give God all the glory. My dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York Mafia Cosa Nostra families. And that's a very powerful position. In that life, you have a boss, an underboss, a cop regime, or captain, and a soldier. I'm sure many of you have seen The Godfather. There is a position called consigliere. Robert Duvall played that role, played it brilliantly, I might add, 
But in The Godfather, it was fictional. Because in order to be a maid, uh, maid member in that life, take the oath, your father must be Italian. Mom could be of another descent, but your dad must be Italian. And my dad, in terms of law enforcement investigation, media attention, very high profile, always under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement, kind of like the John Gotti of his day. I'm sure most of you heard of John. And I grew up a lot differently, I'm sure, than everybody in this room. I grew up hating the police, hated law enforcement, hated the government. And not because my dad taught me that way. He was smart. He taught me to respect the law. But it was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Uh, law enforcement tactics, techniques against organized crime were very different back then than they are today. Today, everything is very covert, a lot of undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment. Today, a guy can be under investigation and not really know about it until it's too late. Back in my day, when they were under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up, Brooklyn and later on Long Island, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. IRS, uh, New York City, FBI, you name it, they were on him. Every one of these agencies had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They had us cornered on all sides. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, I was one of seven kids. We had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant. I got into many scuffles with them, and I really just didn't like them because I loved my dad. I idolized my dad as a kid. He was my hero, and I always saw them as the enemy. And that's how it was. And I want to make this very clear. I don't see too many young people in here right now, but uh, I do not feel that way anymore. Uh, you know, that was a distorted sense of view growing up. Today, I have many friends in law enforcement. I certainly respect them, brought my kids up to do the same. And uh, it was a, 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 dr a dramatic and drastic change in my life, obviously, in the way that I think. But back then, it was different. I loved my dad. I didn't care what people said about him, what I read in the newspapers. He was a great father, good husband to my mother. He didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to go to school and be a doctor. Son, stay off the street, get an education. That's what it's all about. And I was on that road for quite some time until my dad got in some very serious trouble. I like to tell a little story about my dad now, kind of honor him a little bit. Uh, when I was a kid, I played all three sports. It was kind of like a jock in school. My dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing, mob business, legit business. I'd be playing ball, and he'd show up. Baseball was really my sport. This happened so often, I'll repeat it. I'd be playing ball, and I'd be up to bat, and I'd be looking for my dad. And uh, all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I'd see him. He'd pull up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. That's the car he drove. For those of you my age, remember those 1960 Cadillacs? Their fin was half the size of this room. You couldn't miss him, right? And he'd never go into the parking lot because he'd always come late, so he'd pull right up to the field. He gets out of the car. He's always dressed sharp in his suit. My dad never dressed any other way. Always had five or six guys with him. He never traveled alone. So he'd get out of the car. They'd walk onto the field. I'd be up to bat. He'd walk into the stands. I kid you not. The umpire would take one look at that crew, never call strike three on me when he saw that. <laughs> I used to say, hey, Pop, you're very good for my batting average. I played football. Nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. It's good to have a dad and a mom when you play sports, right? Really good. Anyway, he was great. Got in some very serious trouble in the 60s, indicted several times in the state of New York, very serious crimes, twice for grand larceny, once for homicide. He was acquitted in all those cases. Then in 1966, my dad was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robbers. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted in 1967, sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison. 1970, loses all his appeals. They ship him off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. 
I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University in Long Island. I was devastated when my dad went in. Figured he was 50 when he went in. Add 50 on top of that, I thought he'd never come out of prison alive. Just as an aside, on that 50-year sentence, my dad did 40 years in prison. He was in and out five times on parole violations, but he did a total of 40 years. He was released in 2017 at the age of 100. He was the oldest inmate in the system in America at the time of his release. He passed away uh, last year um, in February at the age of 103. He was the oldest living mob guy in America for sure, maybe in the world. I don't know if anybody ever lasted that long, but uh, that's kind of my dad's legacy. But um, I was devastated when he went in. Joe Colombo was the boss of my family, he, uh, of dad's family, kind of took me under his wing, started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. Because people, I'll tell you this, I went to jail for a crime that I was guilty of. I pled guilty, did my time. My dad obviously did a lot of bad things when he was on the street, but that particular crime that he did all that time for, my dad was innocent of. He was no bank robber. Uh, I believe he was framed on that case. I investigated that case thoroughly, spoke to every witness. They recanted their testimony, took lie detector tests, proved they lied at the trial. We can never get the conviction overturned. And it's a message that I give young people. And I tell them this, look, because I met so many of them in prison. I go into juvenile halls all the time. I have a real feeling for youth. I got seven kids of my own. I try to help these kids straighten out. And I tell them straight out, the system is not always fair. You put that bullseye on your back, you know, you want to stay in that kind of life, you're going to go down at some point. The system is not always fair. And the only way to get away from that is just to avoid it. Stay away from it. Because life is tough enough when everything is good. I tell them, when you put this additional weight on your shoulders that you got to carry around, before you know it, you're 30, 40, 50 years old, you look back and say, what did I do with my life? you got to play it straight. There's no other way to go in this world. Believe me, take it from me. I know it. Got a lot of experience in that regard. So I go see my dad in Leavenworth. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. And he was upset. Didn't want that for me. Son, I want you to stay straight. I don't want you involved. I said, Dad, it's too late. I've been around a lot of guys. i got to help you out. I can't see you die in prison. He looked at me and said, okay, because he knew my mind was made up. I was a pretty headstrong kid. I was 21 years old. He said to me, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said to me, go home, somebody's going to be in touch with you, do whatever you're told. And at that point in time, he proposed me for membership in the life. Because you can't just go up to somebody and say, hey, I'd like to join, what do I have to do? Somebody has to propose you, sponsor you, vouch for you, say you have what it takes. In my case, it was my dad uh, that did that. But I want to tell you, that was a very significant meeting, obviously, in my life, in Leavenworth Penitentiary. Because my dad was proposing me into a criminal lifestyle, it was a whole change of life. But more than that, because of that meeting, people, and I think some of you have experienced this, maybe all of you had, when you finally come to Christ and you enter into this relationship with Jesus, and I wish I had the time to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus in its, in its full extent, because when you break it down, cut to the chase in this life, it's all about a relationship with Jesus. That's it. And because of this meeting... I started to think back in my life later on when I entered into this relationship with Jesus, and I said, wow, this was very significant. Because of this, when I came to Christ, I didn't come easy. I challenged God. I said, God, wait a second. I love my father more than anything in the world. I said, and I followed him blindly into this life, and look where it got me, and it got me in a bad place. I'll get to that. You take it a step further in my life. I took a blood oath. 
I surrendered my life to La Cosa Nostra. People, when you get into that life, you got to give it all up, body, mind, and soul, or you don't survive. I said, I did this twice in my life, God, and look where it got me. I can't do this again. If you really are God, if this Bible is written by men but inspired by you, the blueprint for our life, and that's how I look at the Bible, it's God's word in our life. I said, and you take it a step further. You're telling me the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. No gray area, black and white, Jesus or nothing. I said, well, God, you know what? You're asking a lot of me. You put me in this world. I didn't ask to come here. You gave me a free will. You said I can accept any one of a hundred faiths, or I don't have to accept any faith at all. And now you're telling me this is the only way to go? No, God, you've got to prove it to me. You've got to show me the evidence. And people, I know a little bit about evidence. I've been to trial five times. I've had two federal racketeering cases. I've had over 18 arrests in my life. I've been to more parole hearings than you can imagine. Five trials of my dad's. Evidence has played a major part of my life. I think in terms of evidence. I tell people, you're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge when I'm paying attention. I want to see the facts and I want to see the evidence. It's just the way I grew up and it's emboldened in my head. I said, you got to show me the evidence. And people, I want to tell you this. When I, when I challenged God, he didn't get upset with me. I think he finally said, okay, if you're ready to open up your heart and your stubborn mind, I'm ready to show you because I am God and I do have the evidence. And people, when I finally did that, I found there was more evidence, more rock-solid evidence to prove that the Bible is God's word and that Jesus is my risen Savior. Because I don't know about any of you. I don't put my faith in anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. I learned long ago, dead people don't help us. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you do nothing when you leave here, if you're on the edge, if you're not sure, if COVID is taking you down, you don't really know what's going on in life, you don't know what 2021 holds, you, know, you need to prove it to yourself. Do the work. God didn't make us robots. He wants us to come to him freely. You can't have a relationship and believe in somebody you don't know. You got to do the work. Paul says, test everything and hold on to the good. And that's what I did. And people in the last 25 years, not only what God has done in my life, but what I've seen him done in others, it's become very real to me. I tell people this all the time. You got a hero in life? Who is he? Somebody you want to emulate? Bring all your, your information about him. I want to sit down and let's talk about Jesus. Because when I came to Jesus, I did a little bit differently than most of you in here. You know, all my life, from the time I was five years old, my father drummed it into my head, Michael, you got to be a man's man. That's the standard in life that you have to live up to. And I wanted to emulate my dad because I believed he was a man's man. When I got into the life, that's all I ever heard. We're men of honor. And I wanted to emulate some of the guys, Fat Tony Salerno, the boss of the Genovese family. I thought he was a real man. I wanted to be like them. So when I came to Jesus, realizing that he was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, I separated his manhood from his deity, and I said, I want to see what kind of guy he is. And people, I want to tell you this. There was no greater man that ever walked the face of the earth than Jesus of Nazareth. In every way, there was perfection there, in every single way. I was first drawn to his manhood, and then to his deity later on. So I tell people all the time, you got a hero, bring it. Let's sit down. I'll have the New Testament. You bring your stuff. I guarantee you, your guy won't stack up to mine. So here's the conclusion that I've arrived in in my life. If you emulate Jesus in your life, if you're a husband, you're going to be a better husband to your father. A wife, you're going to be a better wife to your husband. You're going to be a better parent to your children. 
If you're a boss, you're going to treat your employees the right way because that's the example that Jesus gave us. And if you're an employee, you're going to give your boss an honest day's work. Everybody in the community is going to benefit by you emulating the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. And you're going to benefit throughout your life. And if he's the savior of the world like we know he is, well, we got all of heaven to gain. And if he's not and if he's wrong when we die, well, we're dead anyway. So what do we have to lose? Emulating Jesus is a win-win situation in our life. And that's the conclusion I came to. Now listen, I can't get within a million miles of Jesus, but that's our hero in life, nobody else. So here's the deal. After my dad proposes me, I was in kind of a recruit period where I had to prove myself worthy. I sat with the boss, he broke it down for me. Michael, you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to this family. That means if your mother is sick and dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service. You leave your mother, you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything, everything and anything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. I was 21 years old. I was in a pledge period for the next two, three years. Had to prove myself worthy. Finally, Halloween night, 1975, I was called into a room with five other men. That night, I took an oath and became a sworn made member of the Colombo family. An oath I took very seriously back then. I take it very seriously today, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. You come into the life, you don't sign a contract. There's no retirement age. You can't say, hey, I'm done. You know what they say, when you leave that life, you either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. Very solemn ceremony, dimly lit room late at night. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. There were six of us that day. We were walked into a room individually. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, underboss consigliere to his left and right, and all the cop regimes or captains were alongside of them. We had about 15 in our family at that point. Walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand, took a knife right here, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it on my hands and lit it flame. It didn't hurt, it burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said something to me that night I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. And I grew up as a Catholic. Went to Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. I was an altar boy the whole bit. But for me, for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't understand that this whole life back then I didn't understand was about a relationship with Jesus. And I'm not blaming Catholics. I have many Catholic friends, some of my family, but it just didn't work for me. And when he said this to me, it was the first time I recall hearing it. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint that's burning in your hands. Do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. People, how far away from God's grace can you be than to be born again into a criminal lifestyle where every day of my life I lived in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man? And people, I want to tell you, I did it knowingly and willingly. My father didn't force me into that life. It was a decision that I made. I take full responsibility of it. I was a knowing and willing sinner. And there were times in my life when I did things that I had to do that I was very uncomfortable doing, but I did them anyway, knowing that they were wrong. How far away from God's grace can you be? And the reason I say this, because some of you out there, I don't know anyone in this room, but I guarantee some of you are struggling. Some of you, I hear it all the time, every day, between social media and messages and, and people that speak to me. You know, Michael, how do you forgive yourself for the past stuff that you did? I can't get past that. I'm struggling. I have challenges. I've done so many things in my life. And I say, hey, 
If God can forgive me, and I really believe he has, and there's no arrogance in that. No arrogance. It took me a long time to understand God's forgiveness. You don't just, you know, you know, say a prayer, accept Jesus, and think it's all over. No, it was difficult for me. But the more I understood the Bible, the more I understood God's grace, the more I got to realize that, you know what? God's grace is for everyone. If we sincerely confess our sins and accept Jesus, and what's the key word there? Sincerely, because people, I want to tell you, I pulled a lot of scams on the street, no doubt about it, but I know one thing. I can't pull a scam on God. He knows our hearts. But if we are sincere, and we confess our sins, and we accept Christ, and we are forgiven, grounded the foot of the cross, this level, that's it. That's God's words, not mine. And I don't do what I do to make up for what I did in the past. You can't make up for what you did in the past. You can only start today and do better. And if anything, people, I want to be an example of that for you because God has done amazing things in my life. He really has. I spent over 20 years in that life. And like I said before, did a lot of tough things. I, you know, you saw the video. There's no need to get into that. I was very successful in terms of that life. I was appointed a cop regime, a very high uh, official order in that life in 1980. I made a tremendous amount of money. I was a good provider for the family. I had a lot of success in that life. But it all came tumbling down at one point. But I'll tell you where the thing really changed. In 1984, among many things I was doing, I was making movies. I had a production company in L.A. Smokey Robinson was a friend. He came to me with a screenplay for a breakdance movie. A lot of music, a lot of dance, a lot of rap music. But that's when you can listen to rap music on the radio. Not like today. Forget about this stuff today. But back then it was cool. You know, it was better. But uh, so I filmed this movie in Florida. And uh, I brought cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, and we brought 50 professional dancers. And I had them staying in a hotel in, in Fort Lauderdale. We had just finished pre-production, and um, uh, we were going into principal photography on Monday. Sunday, I'd throw a party for everybody in the back of the hotel. Beautiful day in Florida. Everybody's having a good time. I'm sitting by the pool, minding my own business. All of a sudden, this beautiful 20-year-old girl comes out of the water. Uh, at the pool. I saw her. Everything went in slow motion. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? And I said, wow, who is this girl? Anyway, to make a very, very long story short, I fell very much in love with her. She was a young Christian girl from Anaheim, California, who's now my wife of 35 years. And there's no doubt that God put this woman in my life between me and her, uh, between her and her mom, who was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. My mother-in-law, Irma, you meet her for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. And, um, you know, I, I got to tell you, when I met this woman, I was at the height of my life as a mob guy. It was never on my radar screen ever to walk away from that life. It wasn't even a thought. But somehow I meet this woman, and my love for her becomes more powerful then this lifelong love, this adoration I had for my dad became more powerful than this blood oath that I took to La Cosa Nostra. Now, how do you explain that, people? You know, I don't know. Only that God had a different plan and a purpose for my life. Again, long story short, I took a plea to a major racketeering case that I had. I accepted a 10-year prison term. I had $15 million in restitution. I married Camille. She was 21 years old. We moved out to California. I went off to do my time. While I was in prison, and I want to tell you this, I'm not the story here. I'm really not. My wife is the story. That woman had no idea, really. She's out in Southern California. There's no mob out there. We call them the Mickey Mouse mob. There's nothing going on out there. She didn't know anything. She saw the Godfather once. That was the extent of her knowledge of my life.
and she got some education. And she'll tell you, I love my husband. But if Jesus wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, we would have never made it. It was too tough. That 10 years in prison, I did hard time. The government really came down on me. They were trying to turn me into a witness. It became public that I was walking away from my life. My dad practically disowned me. He felt like I betrayed the life. The boss of my family, Carmine Persico, who just died last year in prison, he was convicted on a mob commission case and got a 100-year prison sentence. He died last March. Put an immediate contract on my life. I had a rough time in jail. Government came in. Francis, you're a dead man anyway. You may as well cooperate with us. We'll put you in a witness protection program, protect you and your family. I didn't want that. I wasn't looking to hurt anybody. I wasn't mad at anybody. I just wanted out of the life because I knew I tried to preserve my life for me and my wife and, and our kids. They didn't take no for an answer. Gave me a very tough time in prison. I get out. I'm on parole for 13 months. Worst 13 months of my life, people. Big shot mob guy made all this money on the street. I couldn't get anything going in L.A. I was like a fish out of water. Couldn't get anything going. After 13 months, like a fool, and I was literally dodging bullets. I never call, uh, you know, sold my fam former mob guys short, man. They were looking to get me, and there was a lot of running around that we had to do during that time. My wife, every time I walked out the door, she was afraid I wasn't coming back. Went through some very hard times. After 13 months, like a fool, and I mean a fool, I fall into a trap, violate my parole. They put me back in prison. Francis, you'll never see the street again. The government was very upset with me. They gave me four years on a parole violation. I spent 35 more months and 13 days in prison, 29 months and seven days in the hole, solitary. Six by eight cell, 24 seven, for 29 months and seven days. And people, let me tell you something, that's not easy. I don't care what anybody tell you. I learned during that experience, we, were, we weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. It was very tough. First night I was in that, that cell was the worst night in my life. I want to tell you this. I used to demean people that were suicidal. I called them weak. How do you not face up to your troubles? I don't do that anymore. I wasn't suicidal that night, but I wanted to lay my head down on that cot and not wake up again. It was too painful for me to think of my future. This is it. I'm 39 years old. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a hole. My wife, how's she going to wait for me now? She waited for me five years. 13 months on parole, she's 26, 27 years old. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. I'll never see our two little babies again. That's it. Life is over for me. It was very, very difficult. I'm lying in that cot, and I wanted to close my eyes and not wake up. That was it. Prison guard walks by myself. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, I don't feel good. Leave me alone. Get away from me. I chased him. He left. He came back about a minute later and pushes something through the slot on the door. It falls on the floor. I hear a thump. It was a Bible. I don't want to see a Bible. I wanted a bottle of Prozac or something, right? I look down at that Bible, people. I'm not exaggerating. I'm feeling sorry for myself. Everything is building up in me. I jump off that cot. I pick up that Bible. I slammed it against the cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. It took me another minute. I said, you know what? There's only me and God in this cell. I don't need another enemy. I got nothing but enemies. I believed in God. I picked up the book. I looked up at that cement ceiling. I said, God, if you're really up there, you need to give me something to make me feel better. I can't deal with this. And I'm holding the book. I didn't even know where to begin. You know, in Catholic school, you read the catechism. You don't really read the Bible. And it opens up to the book of Proverbs. Coincidence? I don't think so. Very analytical guy. Got to show me evidence. I start reading Proverbs. Solomon was brilliant. 
You know, when God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise and nobody after you will ever be as wise as a reward for what he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, who had a little advantage, he was God, nobody was as brilliant as Solomon. And I'm reading that and I'm really getting turned on. I'm saying, wow, this guy's brilliant. And then I come to a verse that just stopped me cold. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. You know how much that verse meant to me? This much. I have it right here. I look at it every morning because it's the verse that finally the Holy Spirit got my attention. And I'm thinking about it. The enemies part got me because I had nothing but enemies. And all of a sudden, it was like I was brought back and it was almost as if God was saying to me, have you always been pleasing to the Lord? Who are you kidding? Yeah, you're trying to be a nice guy now, but it's not real. And I kind of just, I gave it to myself. He said, but if you were pleasing to the Lord, I'll take care of your enemies because I'm God and I can do that. That's how I interpreted that verse. And you know, you can read a Bible verse 10 times. It could have 10 different interpretations to you because the Holy Spirit speaks to that verse, through that verse, according to your needs at that moment. And it caused me to read on a little more. And I came on to the verse that's now become the verse of my life. And I think it should be the verse of every one of your lives. I think it all starts here. Now, I don't want to tell you what to do. But I am a former mob guy. I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him. And get this verse, because I looked up the translation. He will, not he can or not he might, he will make your path straight. And when you break it down, people, that's my story. It was that night that I challenged God. I said, no, God, trusted my father, took a blood oath. Look where it got me. If you're God, prove it to me. From that night, I started my search. And by the way, that verse is right here. Because I remind myself every day of how blessed I am just to be walking the face of the earth. And that's the night I started my search. If you see my prison Bible, more of my notes on there than there is scripture. I had my wife send me in over 400 books on every faith. I said, no, I'm going to study this. I'm going to do it. I studied every faith. I used to listen to Pastor Greg Laurie. For those of you who know him, Harvest Mystery. I never heard of him before, but I listened the way he interpreted Scripture. I had a Sony Walkman. You young people don't know what that is, but we had a Sony Walkman in the hall every day. And I came out of there convinced beyond any doubt that the Bible was God's word and that Jesus was my risen Savior. And people, when I got out of jail, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. Speaker, the pastor of my church who married us, Dr. Myron Taylor, he's passed on now, wonderful man. He said to me, Michael, he said, when you come and tell your story, give your testimony to our congregation. The testimony, I didn't even know what he was talking about. I thought you did that from a witness stand. I didn't know what he was talking about. Anyway, from there it just started, and God, you know, I've written five books, there's movies about my life, I've spoken all over the world, and it just keeps getting better. God just keeps using me in different ways. I don't plan a lot of these things, people. I learned to be a follower of God and not so much a leader. I learned to let him be in control of my life, and I try to follow the steps the right way. Now, I want to tell you how significant this is because I'm just about out of time. When I walked away from that life in 95, everybody predicted my death. My book, Blood Covenant, we've run out of it now. I don't have it until February. We've sold a lot of books lately. I do, I want to mention this, though. I do have one book, and people, you know, it's called God the Father. Not Godfather, but God the Father. 
uh, out of the five books I've written, I really put my heart in this one. There's about 10,000 of them in prisons all over the country because if you're on the edge, if you, re you really need some validation of the Lord, this is the book that I put my, my work into. I really mean it. And we're giving them out all over the country. And uh, so if you're interested in something, I'm sorry, that's the only one that we have left at the end of the year. But if you read the inside cover of my autobiography, Blood Covenant, everybody predicted my death. Life magazine, quote, if he holds to what he has promised will mark the first time a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past and live. Ed McDonald, head of the organized crime strike force in New York, my prosecutor, when I was released from prison, said, I wouldn't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't think his life expectancy is very substantial. That was in 95. Bernie Welsh, the FBI agent, he wasn't as diplomatic at Ed. He said point blank on national TV, Franzese will get whacked. And I think you know what that means in street terms. That's in 95. My mother, God rest her soul, said I pray for my son every night. She was so worried about me knowing what was going on on the street. That was in 95. In 1975, I walked into a room with five other gentlemen. We all took that oath. Today, I'm the only one alive. Not one of those men died of natural causes. All five of them were murdered. It's a tough life, people. We had a big war in our family in the 90s. Want a little more proof that when God has a plan and a purpose, nothing will stand in the way? You saw Fortune magazine, written in 1986, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. Huge article, half the magazine, they featured six of us. I was one of the six. Out of the list of 50, I was number 18. I was five behind John Gotti, who was number 13 at the time. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't made boss yet. I was the youngest guy on a list. And people, don't ask me how they make a list like that. They didn't ask for our tax returns. It was all nonsense. You know, it sold a lot of magazines. But that's not important. You know what is important about that? Out of that list of 50, 48 of them are dead. One is doing life in prison. I think he's just released, getting released at the age of 93. And here I am, number 50, standing here for one reason and one reason only, to give praise and honor and glory to my Lord and Savior and my hero, Jesus Christ. And it shows you, when God's got a plan and a purpose for you, nothing is going to stand in the way of him fulfilling that purpose. No mob, no mafia, no Cosa Nostra, no sickness, no death, no addiction. Nothing will stand in the way of God fulfilling his purpose in our lives except for one thing. And you know what that is? That's all of us. Because remember, God is never an intruder in our life. He's always an invited guest. So I'm telling you this, people. If you haven't made that step in your life yet, what are you waiting for? We're not guaranteed another day in this life. You've been around long enough. We know that. Not another day. But we are guaranteed heaven. And remember this, people. God never promised us heaven on earth. We go through struggles and challenges. He was very specific about that. We're going to have our hard times. He promised us heaven in heaven. And that's what we got to get through. And he will have our backs all the way if we allow him to. So that's it. God bless. I wish you blessings in 2021. We'll get ready for the next service. See you all next time. Thank you very much. God bless.